John Robinson is a business continuity consultant with a huge breadth of experience across different industries and organisations. John's a big advocate of using firm metrics to both assess continuity requirements and evaluate the performance of subsequent solutions. He's used this approach to help some of the largest financial institutions in the world make sense of incredibly diverse and intricate risk landscapes. In season one, John told us about his experience with Associated British Ports and their recovery from the mega flood in 2013. You can hear his story on episode five. This time, we wanted to talk to John about how different organizations and industries define and experience the interwoven threads of business continuity, disaster recovery, and crisis management. Something that came up early in our conversations with John was the idea that crisis was in the eye of the beholder. In contrast to most of the experts we've heard from, John's work often relates to large-scale crisis prevention and management. He talks about COMAR sites later on, that's control of major accident hazards, regulations designed to protect pieces of critical national infrastructure, such as the associated ports, that dictate relevant businesses take all necessary measures to prevent major accidents involving dangerous substances. John also works with large multinational organisations in high-risk industries located in dangerous geographies. This confluence of threat factors means that the mining industry, for instance, have a very different threshold for what they would classify as a crisis. Around the world, what the conglomerate I was talking about, they're in every bad, every bad place you can imagine because that's where minerals are. They're typically out in deserts, in jungles, uh, all over the place. Um, and it becomes, well, they're constantly threatened by it. Mm. What you and I would consider a crisis, they consider normal. It's as if the threshold moves because of the, the frequency. And, and what they do is they make it so it's not a crisis by building the controls that allow it to be brought into normal normal mm. space. So I suspect they do have the same definition of a crisis when they haven't got enough time, enough resource, enough information. But most of the time they've built systems that ensure that they do have that. You would almost certainly apply the same definition, but they are more, they're more capable. A crisis is a worse event for them. It would have to be much worse mm. for them not to be able to deal with it. So this is an interesting point. Your idea of crisis depends on what your idea of normal is. Your normal circumstances dictate the processes and controls you've put in place to control crises. A crisis, therefore, has to be more severe to not be handled by those controls. So for these very large organisations with very significant risks, often based around physical hazards, how do we define the boundaries between continuity planning, emergency response and crisis management? As John explains, they remain separate adjacent activities despite being closely related. I usually view it as three strands that are, are quite different. Different but super linked and have to be completely linked. You usually have quite a prescriptive emergency response. So there are all sorts of de definitions for what this means, but my, my definition of it would normally be a very carefully and thoroughly thought through and practiced set of activities that you do when you see a certain situation arising. So you have to be able to qualify the situation, uh, identify it, and then respond in a very known and proven way. So I don't know, if you have a site, a coma site on a business park, and something goes wrong with that coma site, and there's gases released or an explosion risk or whatever, you need to know exactly what to do. So it's got to be there. And I would do that for all of the significant hazards that the organization faces. I'd make sure we 
actually have each one set out and that's the way we, we do it. And I wrap those specific responses within a generic response. So there is an overall plan. So it's like the catch-all. Mm. It's what you would do if the place caught fire, typically. It doesn't always work because sometimes you go inside and sometimes you go outside, but that's different situations. You can almost always use a flowchart to represent it. Uh, within all of that, you have all the escalation. Uh, it goes kind of detect, escalate, mobilize, and then make some decisions about what the hell to do. If it turns out it, it could damage the business, the decision you make will be to start operating completely differently, and it could have a very large cost. And so if you get it wrong, it's cost you a lot, mm. but there was no recovery, no requirement. So normally what you would do in parallel with that emergency response, and that would typically last hours to days, but it will, it will have a natural life cycle. And you, you can kind of measure this by uh, the way the blue light services would respond. When they turn up at a site, they, they will take over that site until they're certain there are no lives at, at risk, mm. and then they'll hand it back to you, and then it's yours. That's it. That was their, their response defined. There are other things around the response, all the reporting and so on, but they have a very well-defined response, great set of procedures, just very precise and very well rehearsed, so they know what to do, and that's what we, we should do. Given how closely related these adjacent activities are, I wondered if they ever overlapped in practice, whether continuity plans and crisis management activities could offer conflicting instructions or compete for the same resources. As John explained, they don't tend to conflict because they each refer to self-contained objectives, and they each become activated only after separate criteria are met. The realisation, the escalation to a crisis situation will only be when certain criteria are met. So you'll normally prescribe the criteria for when we need to start to think differently about this. So at that stage, you're then going to have to have additional resources. So you may have a command centre, you may have things set aside, and they need to be different from the other stuff that's already being used. At some stage, again, you may decide, well, okay, if it's an operational issue, as opposed to, for example, a media issue, as you said, well, then I'm going to need to kick off my business continuity plan. And that, that could almost trigger at any time. Mm. That gets triggered at the phase where you can see there is a threat to ongoing business. So crisis management, really, it's a threat to reputation, future customers, that kind of thing. So it tends to be more, it's contain, containing the information flow out of the organization, controlling it, communicating in good time to people that need to know. So you don't damage your chances going forward. So it's like a, a preservation thing. Business continuity ought to be completely internal. Mm. And only information that's allowed out through the gateway, the crisis management gateway, ever hits the big wide world. So it should be a secret. Crisis situations operate on a different kind of timeline to continuity incidents. As we've covered already, one of the key differences is the volume and quality of information flowing in and out of your organisation. Crises tend to be far less predictable, and you're often working with an incomplete understanding of the situation. This lack of information can often conceal the real consequences of an unfolding series of events, leading to something John referred to as a false dawn of recovery, a period in which initial symptoms have alleviated, and therefore recovery efforts slow down prematurely. You have to look at different people becoming aware of a situation and the rate at which they become aware of the situation and the rate at which they realise it's a bad situation. As a crisis evolves, it goes, there's an initial realisation 
and possibly you put it off because you think it's going to calm down as in fact it's carrying on and because you don't have the information feed you don't know that it's carrying on then you become aware then the severity becomes absolutely apparent to you and you realize that you don't have the resource to deal with it in the time frame that will be required to keep it acceptable for you so all of a sudden you realize that well i now know where i'm up to i now know what we face i know we are we're on the brink and i now need more time I need to buy time somehow i need to go and find the things i need to plug these holes and at the same time you're just trying to claw back information to bring back control over something that's out of control that's what it is you're out of control so i, I think that's how you get to the the peak and you either come through it or you don't if you do come through it there's a kind of a relaxation afterwards and the risk then is that it hasn't gone away so you kind of get a false dawn and if you get into this false dawn situation and you take your foot off the gas then it can come back and bite you again it tells you about how sustained your oversight of the situation needs to be and the timing thing you should know exactly how long you've got because you've done an impact analysis by doing this in advance you can see how long you've got you can see i would need that and that and that within these time frames and i'm going to get them now so i've already got a set so that's what the mining conglomerate does it puts the stuff in place ready every site has a crisis management center mm -hmm. every site it's just got them and they manage an incident as an incident without it ever becoming a crisis it never gets there although it's called a crisis center because they've got everything in place first so I think that's, that's the essence of it. For John, the information feed is the key to incident response and crisis management because it feeds good decision making. Different industries and organisations may have individual thresholds for crises depending on their definition of normal circumstances. But it's the flow of accurate information towards clearly defined decision points that underpins all good incident response. And as we found out, it's no coincidence that crises and decision points are so inherently linked. This is actually a, a quote I picked up from a client 20 years ago, I think. Uh, and we were, we were actually putting together a crisis management education piece for the board of a well-known airline. And we, we went and looked it up, and it's, it's defined as the turning point in a disease. It's from a Greek word, uh, crisis, seems reasonable. <laughs> and it means judgment, or to separate or decide. Exactly where that decision point resides depends on the organisation in question and the situation at hand, but for John, it often describes a moment where the initial consequences of disruption can no longer be contained and they become externally visible. The decision point is, is when the outside world starts to realise things are not going well. And there will be a point where your customers will notice, where they get uncomfortable and then where they get mad and start to act against you. So you need to know where that is, what that point is, and you need to know what you're doing about it so crudely what could happen you stop production of whatever it is you do and after an hour it's it's okay people are getting a bit hacked off a couple of hours and you're starting to get a lot of phone calls half a day and you're getting some very annoyed phone calls at a very high level uh, and you start to feel that it's having a damaging effect so at that point, you need to know, you need to be start to be able to make some promises. Uh, promise them when, when you're going to come back. And therefore, you need to know what your organisation is going to do. So I've always used scenarios as the basis for deciding what to do. So I try and work out what the scenarios are under which I'm going to need these. And from the scenarios, I design strategies. So the way the strategies look is initially they're, they're written. And it will normally be, what are our priorities? 
what are the, the main lumps of how we're going to respond. We're going to do this. We're going to send these people here. These are very physical doing type things that will restore the service or make the customers happy one way or another. In other words, it fixes the problem that's being perceived. And it might just be you make a series of phone calls and say, we've got this problem, hold off for a bit. Sometimes it works. Uh, other times you have to actually restore the service, so you're going to have to do it differently. I then translate that into pictures. So my aim is that when something happens, I should be able to stand up in front of a workforce and say, right, this is, our, this is what we're going to do. Here are the words I'm going to say to you. And here's a picture that represents what we're going to do. And I, and I break it down into strategies for uh, customer facing products and services, financial, operational, technology, supply and infrastructure. So that decision point isn't just recognition that an incident is getting out of hand and becoming a crisis. It must also be followed up by actions. I like the analogy of those rough lumps that describe a broad continuity outcome that are then refined into more specific crisis response pictures as the situation demands. Given that John's previous point, that crises often materialise at a point where symptoms can no longer be contained internally, it's no surprise that PR management makes up a significant portion of crisis communication strategies. John had a useful checklist of do's and don'ts for organisations managing their reputation under the media spotlight. There's a, there's a whole list of do's and don'ts that are associated with this, and they're extremely well documented, far better than I could do them now. Uh, but I mean, my, my, my crude little list here, uh, the do's and the don'ts, don't exaggerate, don't lay blame, don't speculate, don't argue with reporters, don't mislead or lie, don't say no comment. Just give them something. They want a story. You need to have a story to give them. You're going to have to think quickly. I remember one particular example of an exercise where the CEO got doorstepped by this by a reporter that we'd actually put on the task. And she decided she was going to see how long she could keep him talking, keep him away from making the decisions that he's supposed to be making. He was there for ages. And we were trying to teach him, trying to get him to stop, stop. Just say, I can't tell you anymore now, let's go. But there's lots of things like that. Uh, in terms of things that they say to do, I mean, there's a great list. Stay calm and balanced. Focused on human aspects first, business last. Prepare and plan. Assemble the relevant facts. Don't get drawn into unfamiliar areas. Keep your answers short, simple and to the point. A key element in controlling the public narrative is to understand the motivations of the people you're speaking to and adjust the content and delivery of your messaging accordingly. For the press, that means giving them something to write about is often preferable to keeping quiet and letting them frame the story instead. I've taken part in all sorts of simulations with the media, with people that represent the media, really, and they, they just want a story. That's all they want is a good story. And if you don't give them a good story, <laughs> they'll write one. <laughs> and then the other, the other spin factor on this is that someone once said to me that uh, when, you're, when you're in the media, bad news is news and good news is advertising. So if you try and only tell them good things, uh, the chances are they won't buy it and they'll go and hunt for something a bit more juicy. If you can understand what their angle is, what... What, what their interest group is, where they're from. Are they from a technical paper? Are they from the Sunday Times? Uh, are they just a local reporter who just happens to have got there? Find out what it is that they want to know before you start to give them all the answers, because then you can actually shape your responses 
and they're more likely to go with your story than make their own up. I mm-hmm. think that's, that's a pretty good one. Good presentation of the crisis to the media can mean the difference between an empathetic response from the wider world or the start of major reputational damage. But it doesn't come naturally to many organisations. It's a uniquely public-facing aspect to recovery, and like all continuity activities, rehearsing and exercising is the only way to develop a reliable response to external scrutiny. It's unlikely that you're going to be able to do this just like that, just because of talent. You know, it really helps to practice. And I, again, there are all sorts of companies out there that do crisis media training. I would really advise that at least three people in an organisation should have had that level of training, preferably once a year, maybe two years, but I would go for it once a year. Probably isn't too much. It's just going, sitting in a room and going through it Mm -hmm. and being subjected to it and understanding what it's like because then you will know what it is you've got to do. And it really is your, if you think about it, you could do a fabulous recovery and say the wrong things. You know, you could be there. You could have made it through the the whole difficult aspect and everything's paid for and you put a few few steps wrong. Mm. You undermine everything that you've tried to do. So I, I personally, I think it's really worth it. There's, a, there's another long sort of drawn out, more drawn out thing where if you can see this is going to go on a long time or if it's a, a more open issue, a public issue, the chances are you're going to need to probably have press briefings. If you've got the media all around the place and they're camped out for days or weeks, you're going to have to tell them. So you're going to have to plan it. So it's almost certain that you're going to need someone to look after the whole PR mm-hmm. thing. So you have to assign someone and train them as well. And they're going to have to brief you as to what the next piece is going to be. You can't be doing this all the time if you're the CEO. So you have to decide whether you're going to let someone else do this or whether you're going to do it yourself. Uh, and I think it varies depending on what the CEO wants to do and what the personality of the CEO is like. To have a trained media person is a really good thing. John mentioned that it's very unusual for people to take to crisis media communication naturally without any training by virtue of sheer talent. I wanted to know if the same was true of crises in general or whether there were some personality traits that made people particularly suited to recoveries. The answer is interesting. Crisis management isn't a solitary activity. It depends on a lot of people collaborating and feeding off one another. You often hear it's useful to have a crisis management team full of people who are cool, calm and collected under pressure. But John's final point Maybe think about those traits in a new way. It's not that composure necessarily improves the quality of decision-making or the outcome of recovery tasks, but instead that it sets the tone for the whole business. The calmness and confidence of a capable CEO raises no alarms further down the organisation and sends a message, both internally and externally, that the crisis is under control. So although whatever's happening underneath, it's like the swan, you want to be like the swan, paddling madly under, under the water, rebuilding the business, but all is calm on the surface and you're just giving measured, balanced statements that give everyone confidence and belief in what you can do. 